Welcome to All Fired Up. I'm Louise, your host, and this is the podcast where we talk all things anti-diet. Has diet culture got you in a fit of rage? Is the injustice of the beauty ideal getting your knickers in a twist? Does Fitspo make you want a Spitspo? Are you ready to hurl if you hear one more weight loss tip? Are you ready to be mad, loud and proud? Well, you've come to the right place. Let's get all fired up. Well, hello again and welcome back. I bet you were not expecting to hear from me this soon, but I am so excited to bring you part two of our COVID Contiki tour. I simply couldn't hold back. And here we are again for your viewing pleasure. Well, listening pleasure, let's face it. Uh, you really don't want to see what I look like after being down a rabbit hole of research for that long. So if you are tuning in to part two of our COVID Contiki tour series, please go back and listen to the last episode because today won't make a lot of sense unless you've heard part one of my fantastically fired up chat with Jessica Campbell and Fiona Willer on the topic of how uh, the whole COVID crisis is being kind of hyped up through this weight bias lens. And what we've been doing is romping through the research literature that's been coming out across the world. In episode one, you heard from us and we talked through uh, how this hasty rhetoric of a link between body size and uh, seriousness and outcomes and being able to catch COVID-19 and even a particularly shitty paper which talked about increased likelihood of large people apparently shedding the virus at an increased rate. And that was a fascinating conversation. In that first episode, we romped through the data from China and some of the information coming out from the US data. So today in my hot little hand, I have part two of this conversation where we continue our Contiki tour to three brand new countries. We're going to visit France, we're going to go to Italy, and we're going to go to the UK. It is absolutely fantastic stuff that we have for you. When I say fantastic, I mean actually pretty hideous. <laughs> uh, to be honest, we're in the middle of a global pandemic, and it is killing thousands of people. It's extremely heavy going, serious topic. So this one can be triggering for people. I really want you to consider your own mental health before you listen and whether or not you're kind of willing to take on quite a lot of statistical, technical stuff, but also just the weight of the weight bias that comes through when we talk about this kind of topic. So please make sure you're okay. You can press stop at any time. Uh, there is uh, hugely uh, atypical use of the word obesity throughout the first and this episode with um, full disclosure from me, Jessica and Fiona, is we don't use that O word in our everyday lives. We have found it really difficult not to use it because we're talking about so much scientific research which does frame everything under this topic of obesity. So it's with a heavy heart that, that I warn you that, that this is language heavy and in part one we talked about I suppose contracting COVID-19 and risk of hospitalization and to some extent we dabbled into the seriousness of the outcomes of COVID-19. Today's 
topic, we will things get a little darker. So we're going to start talking about death and uh, comorbidities. So some some pretty nasty outcomes, worst case scenario outcomes. And I want to preface it by reminding everyone that COVID-19, although dreadful, is for the most part, for the vast majority of cases, to our knowledge so far on April the 26th, the vast majority of cases upper respiratory infections that are pretty mild. However, for a certain percentage of people, and we're not exactly sure how many, but it seems like a minority, so not, not everyone, but people get very sick and certainly die. So this is what we're talking about. We are um, looking at a slice of the data from that very serious pool. So what we're talking about isn't reflective of everyone's experience with uh, contracting COVID-19. Thankfully, not everyone who gets it gets very sick. Not everyone who gets it needs to go to hospital. But this is the focus because this is where the research data is being focused. So um, all of that is a really long-winded way of saying this is pretty heavy, mate. And if you're not up to it, I totally get it. Just go tune out, watch some Netflix, watch some birds fly by. Uh, don't stress yourself. However, if you are fascinated, because it is a fascinating rabbit hole we went down, uh, come with us on this wonderful part two of our Contiki tour uh, as we visit these other countries and see what their statistics and data and science are saying about COVID-19. Uh, it's, it's an awesome conversation. Again, I want to recognise the intense labour that Fiona and Jessica have put in to, to having this conversation. So without further ado, I give you part two of me with Jess and Fiona. So let's travel on now to a different country, to France. Beautiful country. Would love to go there at some point. <laughs> Isn't isolation fun? But there is a study that's being talked about that came out of France, which is being used again to kind of push this idea of the link between uh, BMI and not just hospitalisation, but seriousness, so need for um, ventilation. So this was a study and it was pretty small, actually, that the title is Obesity is an Independent Risk Factor for Severe COVID-19. So it's upping the ante in this article to claim that body size is an independent risk factor for severity, so for how sick you get if you get COVID-19. So what was it? Well, it was a really small study. It was 124 patients who were admitted to the ICU in a, a hospital in, I'm not sure if you pronounce it, Lille or Lille, L-I-L-L-E, sorry, everyone French, uh, in France. And what it said in the New York Times article was that, uh, that nearly half of the 124 patients were um, large. I just can't keep saying the word obesity, but I have to. I'm sorry. So they're saying it's twice the obesity rate of a comparison group of people who admitted to intensive care for other reasons last year. So that makes sense. Um, and it just uh, also claimed that as people's body weight went up, so did their need for uh, ventilation. So this is really being strongly used as a, a claim to push this idea of symptom severity. So what, when I looked into this, first of all, things to look at is um, who were the people that were being admitted. 73% were male. Again, older age, average age of 60. So we're seeing that maleness thing again. And it did look like people were in higher body weight categories, definitely. 
the study controlled for age, diabetes and hypertension, but it also didn't con uh, control for other factors which have been found to be really important here. So things like smoking or cardiovascular disease or cancer or chronic respiratory disease. So those are really important things that were left out of the picture here. We don't know anything about what was going on there. And there's literally no mention in this paper either of social disadvantage, which how important is that to look at? So I had a look at uh, Real Lille in France and discovered that it is a working class city, but it has a really high poverty rate. So one in four people who live there live below the poverty line. And that fact is not mentioned in the paper anywhere, nor is it mentioned in the New York Times article. And so once again, I just want to make this point from this French study that if you read something about body size and COVID symptom severity, you are not being told the full picture when it comes to um, health and what impacts on our health, what impacts on our ability to fight back and recover from uh, an infection which we have no immunity for. None of us have any immunity, right? But if you're already doing it tough, then you know, it could be more serious. And BMI just masks this. And so I really wanted to make that point. Now we're gonna to go to Italy, which has been obviously one of those countries that's been hit so incredibly hard by COVID and just, just incredible impact that we're seeing there and some horrible, statistics on death rates and they have somehow managed to get some data together and put out some papers which is pretty uh, amazing when you think about it. So we're going to kind of have a look at that and including a paper which was released on the 20th of April so it's really quite recent and we're looking now at more at um, outcomes so deaths and things like that. So this is pretty heavy going. So this study was uh, pretty large, including, I think, uh, deaths for 21,500 people, which is it's staggering numbers. And just sort of digging into this, the relationship again between body weight and deathy outcomes or seriousness of outcomes and demographics and things like that. So I'm going to hand it off to Jess to have a, have a dig into. Yeah, so this study... Um included 21,551 COVID deaths. But the data that they had about coexisting conditions was based on a limited sample of 1,890 people. So that's of who they could access uh, medical files for. So we, we have no idea if what we're seeing in this paper is actually representative of everyone who dies. There's a lot of missing data. All we've got is 8.7% of the total reported. So in the total, which was 21,551, 35.5% were female. In the coexisting condition sample, 31.9% were female. Of 12.2% of those who had died, they had a BMI of over 30 compared with the background general population prevalence in Italy of 10.9%. And, you know, these should have age-matched information as a relationship between BMI and age, because we know that that's a linear sort of association through to 70 years. So as a comparison, 21.2% of this group had chronic kidney failure, which is way higher than the population prevalence um, too. 
it's also notable that prevalence of BMI of greater than 30 is higher in the female cohort women of 13.6 compared to men at 11.5. Yet what we could see here is that may, men were dying much more frequently than women. And women only accounted for 35.5% of the total deaths. I'm not great, sorry. But this is really interesting data, isn't it? Because it's, it's telling us so much information. What we would want to see if the phenomenon that an increased BMI equals an increased risk of death, we would see that that relationship would actually be there, which mm. it isn't. These are tiny percentage differences from the general population. And then compared with the other, not other comorbidities, but with the thing, you know, with actual serious uh, conditions like kidney failure and uh, hypertensions here, heart failure, like all of those conditions are a higher prevalence in those who died than the prevalence of people with a BMI of over 30. So mm. it's, not, it's a nothing burger. The weight relationship here is it's not even slightly interesting when you compare it with these other conditions. Yeah. Yeah. What stands out is the male thing. And that's something we're seeing across nearly all of these studies that we've looked at too. So it can be caught by anyone, but those who progress to a more severe state are typically male and typically older. And it looks like it's possible too that comorbidities, like of various types, can also factor in there. But my goodness, I've just read another stat from that paper, the median of 10 days from onset to death. That is just... Lightning fast. I mean, how horrific. And these people, are, it's not this paper, but it is the UK data that we're going to talk about in a tick, mm. where it mentions how many people were ambulatory before their admission to hospital. And ambulatory just means they're out and about in the community. They don't need any assistance with daily living. Normally they're just like all three of us going about their daily lives without any compromise to their ability to get around and about. 98% of the people in the UK data fell in that category before their admission to hospital. And if we add that to our Italian data, we've got people who were doing their own grocery shopping, working, seeing their grandkids, all the rest of it on day one and dead by day 10. It's just awful. Yeah. None of us have immunity. And there's a lot of factors that go into, into these terrible outcomes. But I, I think a, a real take-home message is that if this virus was about fatness, well, the Italians themselves shouldn't be dying in such horrible numbers because they are among the thinnest in Europe. <laughs> There's still also this harking back to Dr. Asim Malhutra's passionate claims that if everyone just followed the low-carb, high-fat version of the Mediterranean diet, we'd fight off corona. Here is evidence that that is complete bullshit. And this is a deadly virus for, for the small proportion of people who develop serious symptoms. Because we need to keep in mind as well that for the vast majority of people who contract COVID, it will be a mild cold. But but somewhere between 5 to 10% of all people who contract it, as far as we know so far, it can get really serious really quickly. And regardless of how much kale you're eating, what body size you're in, <laughs> it's pretty severe stuff here. That's it. I mean, the whole thing, like diet culture tells us that if we eat in a certain way, move in a certain way and look a certain way, then they're protect we're protected from all sorts of scary mm. stuff coming. And so this worry about BMI is kind of that, again, on a larger scale with COVID. But it's like, it's like wearing a raincoat in a flash flood. There's no difference 
between lifestyle behaviours and your ability to contract this thing. Yeah. So hearts, I'm, I'm just, yeah, hearts are going out to Italians at the moment. Now, there is a breathtaking pile of garbage study that's come out of Italy that we might need to just touch on, <laughs> which <laughs> you stumbled across during, <laughs> during the rabbit hole uh, yeah. marathon that we've been on. I did. What? I thought it was satire at first. I think it was through that article from um, Asim Malhotra, and I just had, mm, had a quick look at some of the um, citations there, and it took me to influenza and obesity, its odd relationship, and the lessons for COVID-19 pandemic. So this is out of Italy, and it was published on the 5th of April, 2020. And it presents three factors. Well, first of all, actually, I'd like to read this little snippet soundbite from it being obese not only increases the risk of infection and of complications for the single quote-unquote obese person but recent evidence indicates that a large obese population increases the chance of appearance of more virulent viral strain prolongs the virus shedding throughout the total population and eventually may increase overall mortality rate of an influenza pandemic and so the paper then goes on to present three factors which make higher weight subjects more contagious than leans. (laughs) The leans. So one being uh, increased viral shedding. Part of the the conclusions of this paper was the call for higher weight folks to participate in an extended quarantine period as part of COVID-19 response. And it's based on an association that's been observed in influenza A. So I went to have a look at the paper it was citing. And so you could see there was an association observed in influenza A, and there was an inverse relationship with influenza B, although it didn't reach statistical significance of a prolonged viral shedding time. I think it was about one, one day, one and a half days. What is viral shedding? So it's the kind of the contagious period where you've, you're still essentially infective you're still shedding virus rna dropping virus bits onto other people yeah yeah usually as a like a fine aerosol or a coarse aerosol as you're breathing we'll get onto that though that comes comes Mm up so what has been observed is that there is increased maybe of a day of viral shedding in influenza a there's an inverse relationship with influenza b and when they pulled all influenzas together there was no association seen it's important to remember that influenza and coronaviruses are both viruses that cause respiratory infection, but they're not the same. So we should be extrapolating this data with caution, and I, I don't think it's applicable at this time point to the current pandemic, and nor should it be informing quarantine extensions oh. for folks at higher weight. And we do actually have information about how the clearance rates of the virus coming out of China, I think, that paper that said that there was no difference within BMI bands of the clearance rate of the virus. So in the case of COVID-19, we do know that larger body people don't shed for longer. We already know. And that was already out there when this paper was published. Ah. Yeah. Oh, that's horrible. It's a bazinga moment for any research to go, oh. (laughs) (laughs) It's like an inconvenient That's awkward. (laughs) I didn't do my research first. We won't talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) It's more convenient to talk about influenza. Yeah, but I've already written this whole paper that's premised (laughs) on this assumption. It gets better. So the second 
factor that makes higher weight folks more contagious than the leans is increased viral load in um, breath via fine aerosols. And again, I followed the citation to go and have a look at the primary reference. And you needed to scroll down to the supplementary table, table S3, which looked at BMI category and viral RNA shedding as a fine aerosol. And what they found was that there was no statistically significant association between viral RNA shedding in any of the BMI categories, unadjusted oh. or adjusted. It's simply, oh it's not statistically significant. And yet they are reporting that this has been a trend that has been observed. Based on actual bullshit. That's so dodgy. Oh my God. Yes. And then... Oh God, it can't get worse. It does. The third point, the third factor that contributes to increased contagiousness is obesity results in a more virulent disease with an increased virulence and morbidity. Now, I had a look at what was happening here, and this um, paper was citing three papers, two of which were murine models, so mice, or, uh, mice models, and a cell culture study, and then extrapolating that back to the human population. <laughs> Big uh-oh. And this really fills a narrative that the higher weight body is some sort of petri dish for producing a more virulent, more mutant you know a mutant variety of virus and it's something to be feared and we really have to wonder about you know what that's adding to the narrative of high weight bodies to be avoided oh my god it's a truly horrific paper it is really shit yeah i, I feel like i'm more than two sets of mice and a petri dish i feel like my existence mm. is probably a little bit more complicated than those three things it's a really dehumanizing narrative this entire like paper <laughs> it is and, I, yeah. and even and, the evidence they're using it's but yeah. you just like it's not like larger body people never get the flu this information is discoverable in humans so if in any papers if you've got a phenomenon that's widespread amongst the population and the paper is citing animal models or uh test tube models Mm. why and that is because they haven't been able to find the thing that they're interested in in humans and so they've tried to go back and find where it is and you'll see that on every supplement bottle any claims that are made about newfangled things like like uh, alternative and complementary medicines when they try to make sciencey kind of claims that it will go back to a petri dish test tube or animal model that was published in 1962 not because the information is unknown in humans but because that was the last recorded time that the relationship was observed in science one of the reasons for doing this podcast was to raise awareness of how claims even in scientific papers quite often not matched by the data and this is a, a glowing example of that yeah. But another point that I really wanted to make is just how much damage can be done if we don't look critically at this agenda building and think of the real world impacts of people in larger bodies. Quarantine is terrible. I mean, quarantine, lockdown, whatever you want to call it, isolation is really terrible for our mental health. And if this dickhead got his paper translated into some kind of public health policy, can you imagine the disaster? that the, the um, limitations on people's freedom of movement based on BMI, based on spurious data, based on weight bias BMI, this makes my blood boil. And the concluding remarks, they give three recommendations. Recommendation number one for higher weight folks and higher weight folks with diabetes, lose weight with mild caloric restriction. <laughs> yeah. Two, 
the use of metformin and other um, glucose uh, modifying uh, drug treatments and to practice mild to moderate physical activity. So wouldn't you go out sprinkling your viral load on people if you're doing mild to moderate physical activity? Yeah, but you wouldn't get very far because you've only got four little furry legs. Right? <laughs> That's if you've jumped out of the test tube. Yes. <laughs> Escape from the cage. Okay. Well, huge bullshit alert for that paper. That, that out of all of the rabbit holes we've been down, that was the stinkiest, shittiest paper that we found because you could see a really horrible agenda coming out of it. Yeah. So thank you for taking us through that shit. And now I'm thoroughly depressed, but we can move on. <laughs> we have one more country left in our whistle-stop tour of the planet, and it is uh, the good old UK. So sure. here we are. Um, we have come to our final stop in our worldwide Corona Contiki tour, and we've landed in the UK, who are another kind of hotspot for this dreadful virus. And we've also landed somewhere with some really fantastic data. So the, um, it, I call it the ICNARC, <laughs> which is, um, I don't even know if I'm allowed to call it the ICNARC, but that's what I've been calling it. It's the intensive care data. And the UK have been, the ICNARC have been releasing a report every single week since um, this kind of began to show its face in Britain. So it's releasing this weekly report on critical care and we now have five weeks of uh, data, so five weeks of report to look at. So we're going to have a look and see what that data is telling us. Okay, so in the UK data, this is the data I'm most familiar with because I've been reading these reports as they've come out every week. They've released on a Friday. It's the same format, although they are releasing more information, particularly about BMI as the weeks go on, which is good for me. And so the information we have is people who are in intensive care units in a relatively wide area of the UK. And we have who's in first and then who's required a higher level versus a lower level of respiratory support. And then we've got who's died. So they're really the main things. But the cool thing about this report is that not only along with the who's being admitted to intensive care, they've actually given us the background general population stats in terms of BMI for the population that that health service area serves. So we can actually see whether it is just reflective on a basic level of the background population or whether there's something funky going on with BMI and the likelihood of, of more intense disease to the point where you end up in intensive care. So first of all, we've got a situation where like, remember our um, some other country, the US data showed us that you've got a 50-50 chance of getting uh, infected by COVID. In the UK data as well, we see a much higher rate of admission of males to intensive care. 71.8 of the people admitted to intensive care with COVID were male. And they've also collected is markers of social disadvantage, the conditions that people came in with, as well as their BMI data and their age, obviously. And we can see over that week, the five weeks period since I've been doing these reports, how things have changed. So those, and it's additive, there's more, as more people get admitted to intensive care and the next report comes out, that includes the next bunch of people. So it's kind of additive, which is really cool because we can see where we went wrong early with the smaller numbers and we now have a much more reasonable, more likely to be accurate understanding of what's happening 
in that location to the people coming into um, intensive care in the UK. So we've got loads more men in here. In terms of the reflection of the people admitted to intensive care and BMI, there's no difference through any of the BMI bands until you get to the over 40 BMI band where there's a slightly higher representation of people with that BMI band being admitted compared with the background population. And so that is likely to be a artifact of that weight bias that we talked about before, particularly in the US data, like uh, mm. people who are admitting people are more likely to be concerned about higher weight people. And I suspect in this population that those high representation early on in the reporting is likely to be an effect of uh, those people being exposed to the virus at a high rate because they may have multiple comorbidities and there are much fewer of them in the population anyway. So it's going to be a little bit weird. But as we see, the proportion of people with a BMI of over 40 is dropping every week during each week's of admissions. Now, the really cool thing, so we're looking at three main things with this data. We've got people who are in compared with the general population. I've spoken about that. Then we've got the people who are in who are receiving advanced support versus basic support. And we look at the BMI background. We're interested in that breakdown, like how, what percentage in the, each BMI band ended up needing advanced versus basic respiratory support. In the higher BMI bands, for the basic versus advanced, throughout just about all the weeks, it's been about 50-50. So if you're admitted and you're in a higher BMI band, you've got a 50% chance of needing higher support versus lower support. But what that means is that BMI is not driving whether or not you're needing higher support or not. There's no difference. So it's not a determinant, basically. If a, high, a larger body size meant that you needed more advanced support, that would be very clear in this data. And by the, like the most recent report that came out on the 24th of April, just a couple of days ago, we've now got more than or almost 300 people represented in a BMI of over 40 band in there. So it would be really blindingly obvious already if it was a determinant of needing higher support. And the other thing is deaths. So we want to know whether larger body people die more frequently than smaller body people from COVID-19 if they receive medical care. So obviously there are people dying out there in the community that aren't receiving medical care. We don't know about them, but we have a little bit of insight into the people who are hospitalised and that's what this data is. Early on in the reporting back on the 27th of March when the first report came out, it looked like people with a higher BMI were more likely to die versus be discharged from critical care. As the weeks have gone on, that effect has blunted. It's moved back it's a phenomenon that we call regression to the mean in statistics. And that's the phenomenon where when you've got a small amount of numbers, something can look really obvious. But as you get more numbers and time goes on, it regresses to the average. And now five reports on, on the 24th of April, your BMI status does not determine whether you die or are discharged. It's a 50-50, regardless of which BMI category you're in. So if you are admitted to intensive care, it's a 50-50 chance whether your BMI is 50 or whether your, your BMI is 25 or whether it's 35, 50-50 chance using this data. But the early reports, there was a disparity. And of course, that's what the headlines have gone with. Now that we've got more information, that effect is gone. Well, that's encouraging. 
yeah, so they're either getting better at treating larger body people or worse at treating smaller body people. <laughs> or with the, with the numbers, now we're getting a much more reasonable picture of, of the probability because we've got enough mm. numbers to build it by. And in the UK, medical care is not determined by income like it is in the US. So this is more likely to be real that we're looking at here. Oh, this is, I mean, this is such an important message. And thank you to the NHS or whoever's behind this beautiful data set because we're, we're actually collating meaningful clinical pictures. And it's not everything. Like I would like to know, what I'd really love again is the detail, the cases by BMI matched to, like linked with their, the other issues mm. that they've got going on, linked with mm. gender, linked with, you know, but we've got the basic categorization and then the outcomes. But if we had all the underlying stuff too, I could run those numbers and actually do the kind of analysis other places have done. So do a like US style odds ratio analysis using UK data, and then we'd really be able to compare uh, what's going on in the different places. Yeah, but it is, I mean, look, this is, I mean, it's just, it's, my brain has trouble kind of comprehending that, like, I keep saying how dreadful COVID-19 is when, once it gets to hospital and the serious illness, but having a 50-50 chance of survival is huge and, and distressing, but it's so important to understand that this BMI relationship is not showing up. And thank you for explaining regression to the mean, which sort of essentially means like the more info we get, we can see something's bullshit. Mm, plus and with the passage of time, that's the other thing. Regression of mean shows that these things that we might be really worried about in time end up not being I the think. issue. So it's much, much better and clearer to see. So this, and this is really robust data. I think we can turn to really talk about this data that they've included, which is called the Index of Multiple Deprivation, which looks at um, categorising people according to the least deprived in the culture to the most deprived in the society. And we're seeing a really strong relationship there, aren't we, Jess? Yeah. And again, I think it's important to uh, preface this conversation with the NHS is very different to the US medical system as fees alluded to access isn't determined on you know how much you can pay it is a, a system theoretically everyone should have equal access to and so what we can actually see here and we won't see this sort of information coming out of the states or we certainly haven't yet is um, in terms of admission based on deprivation we've got quite a linear relationship between um, deprivation and admission. So those folks coming from the most least deprived areas have a lower chance of admission to ICU in contrast to those who are at the highest, higher end, so level five. And so we've got 14.8% admitted at, from that least deprived group of one and 24.7% from the higher end, the low the most deprived end of five. Oh, right. So just what you're saying is that rich people are less likely to get admitted versus poor people in the UK. Yes. And yep. you would assume from the headlines and from the way that the medical system works in the US that it's going to be the opposite. Those with money get yep. treatment in the US. Exactly. Yep. So you can see that we would take away all of those access issues with the higgledy-piggledy very complicated system that the US has and take it back to a system where everyone can access it, mm. that we end up with this obvious Burden. social determinant yeah. of health situation going on. Yeah. Mm. And this, you know, this relationship 
it's flowing through into those who need higher levels of support um, or any support and certainly into advanced uh, respiratory support. And we see this linear relationship again in renal support too. So, you know, you're more at risk of requiring more intensive interventions with increasing um, deprivation. And this really speaks to, you know, a background of uh, medical marginalization leading into the submission period. So okay. it's likely they're coming in with worse health to begin with. Yeah, and it's got fuck all to do with weight. Yes. <laughs> uh, just making that clear. So this is the first week that we've seen this deprivation data. So it's going right. to be really interesting to see it over the following time period. Yeah. Right, because like BMI stuff is boring. <laughs> <laughs> this is really interesting. Yeah. What should be front and centre? Like earlier, Jess, you said this is a stress test on health disparities. Yep, this pandemic is really revealing those um, inequities in health. Yeah, and that's what needs to be front page. Yeah, I mean, those differences, there's no way that we can compare or even see the impact of health disparities unless access is equal to healthcare. Yep. In all other models of healthcare provision other than universal healthcare, there is going to be masking of the effect of social deprivation and economic deprivation. It's so erased from the conversation and it should be completely central. I bet it's a really difficult conversation um, to be having. Public health is not about health. Public health is about housing and public health is about economic access into all things. Equality and safety and opportunity. Yes. Which is much more difficult to talk about and much more difficult to stick in your um, biased BMI-based paper. Oh, but wait. <laughs> wait, it's about food, isn't it? <laughs> An individual behaviour. Dietitian, moi, <laughs> fully acknowledging can we get some adequate housing, economic access, educational opportunities, please. Food does yeah. not matter in this rodeo. It, no, okay, which is so important. I want to I kind of, um, Dr. Mel Hooch's, the root cause of all disease is unavoidable junk food environment. <laughs> what? Yeah, that's his, that's his take on it. And, and in the um, conclusion from one of those letters to the editor in the Obesity Journal, um, you'll love this. The COVID-19 pandemic is challenging the world in an unprecedented way. We at Obesity have been sounding the alarm about the obesity epidemic and now must take up the cause for our patients with obesity in the face of this dual pandemic. Mm, it's that colliding pandemics narrative. Yeah. yeah. And notice that they offer no advice or no call to action for health mm. services to get better at treating larger body people. That's Reorient. not actually what they're calling for. They're calling for more awareness, which is subterfuge for let's keep the pressure up with the fat hate. Mm -hmm. Because if they were really concerned, they would be calling for detailed analysis of how outcomes can be optimised for larger bodied people right now. Not, you know, back in their imagined narrative about how people ended up in a larger body mm. but right now with those people if they were truly advocating they would be absolutely sparing no expense in terms of effort or cost to try to find out how to help outcomes be better for that particular patient group 
Yeah. That's not what they're doing. They yep. just want the narrative that fat is bad to be out there so that they can continue selling uh, medication and uh, treatments and in inverted commas uh, for this equally terrible condition that they're trying to frame it as. To which I say, fuck that shit. I also reiterate that message. <laughs> and I too support that. <laughs> <laughs> there is a consensus. <laughs> we can <concur. laughs> Yeah. No, it's, yeah, it's unbelievable, really. God, I tell you what, I really do feel like I've been on a worldwide journey and I'm exhausted and jet lagged with uh, COVID crap and statistics and human suffering and inequality and obesity rhetoric bullshit. And um, I'm sure you guys are feeling it too. I feel like this is probably going to have to be a two-parter. I think so too. <laughs> I, was, I was wondering... <laughs> Who the fuck would be listening to the end? <laughs> Here's your five hours. <laughs> the COVID marathon. Yeah. Thank you for all of that incredibly hard work and dedication that you have shown and generosity in uh, digging into all of that because this is uh, really important stuff during a really hard time. And I think we need to do a special shout out to Fiona who has managed to record this today with no less than three children who at one point during this recording were all standing in front of her having a screaming tantrum <laughs> all about separate issues <laughs> <laughs> my gosh aren't you a multitasker <laughs> <laughs> and thanks to Jess too because you are over there in New Zealand and I'm pretty sure with the time difference you've been with us nearly all day so. <laughs> no problem so way back at the beginning of this, like um, maybe seems like... That would be months. 100 days ago, Lou. Yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about the beginning of this recording. I am too. 100 days ago. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about what was firing us up about this corona crisis, crap-a-doodle kind of stuff that's happening. And I'm interested, after we've traversed as much territory as we have, what would be your kind of your take-home tips or your closing kind of remarks, things you want people to remember from listening today? So for me, the take-home has always got to be keeping in our sights those people who this is really relevant for. So if you have a larger BMI or your loved ones have a higher BMI, my advice is to dismiss the headlines. Do not listen to the nonsense of people who have got ulterior motive to keep you hating your body size. Know that your BMI, if you catch COVID, that your BMI may be a determinant whether you get hospitalised or not, because that's based on the biases of the, the providers. But once you're in, your chances are no different from anyone else. So don't let any medical providers spin you the line that your higher BMI means you're more likely to die. That's not true, based on current up-to-date information that we've got from two days ago. Don't let anyone spin you the line that you're being placed on a ventilator because of your BMI. That is also patently untrue based on the data that we have as of right now, this day. So please understand that we want the, the best for you and to really help you to not blame yourself or think that your outcomes are going to be any worse, any worse based on that. So that's my take home. That's gold. Thank you, Faye and Jess. I think the take home here really needs to centre around health disparities and inequities. And, um, you know, I think this is going to be 
such an incredible opportunity for us to dig in once this is all over and start to unpick and unpack the different ways in which universal healthcare like we see in the NHS and we see here in New Zealand may contrast with the sort of care and access that we're seeing in the States and how the ability to pay for care might be impacting on people's ability to access higher level of treatment where necessary. So this is a really good opportunity to start to expose some of those um, health inequities for lower socioeconomic, race-based inequities. I really hope that we don't miss this opportunity to dig in and have some of those hard conversations at a later time once the dust has settled. Thank you, Jess. That's so important, isn't it? Health inequities, as well as you know, getting across the data and pushing back against all of this rhetoric that's really hastily being thrown around by people with vested interests. So I cannot thank you guys enough for doing as much as you have today. I'm really aware as we're recording, Jess, you're in New Zealand, Fee, we're here in Australia, we are really bloody lucky. And there's that element too, no one on the planet has uh, immunity to this virus. And some places on the planet are suffering on a level that we cannot even comprehend. And our hearts are going out to you. And we're, we're really hoping that this ends quicker than, than it just, uh, I've got no words. I get overwhelmed. <laughs> but look after yourself, everybody. We will get through this. And we will get through this with our bullshit antennas, even larger, more erect, more, more, more attuned than ever before and hopefully the lesson that we can learn from this is that we're all human we're all in this together and we can do better we can do so much better than um, looking at everything through this narrow pointless lens of BMI my hugest heartfelt thank yous to both of you thank you again for having me on thanks for having me Louise and spending the time with us looking at the data got traumatic stress as I'm sure we all do. Thank Been you again. Dreaming confidence intervals. And that's a wrap. Finally, our two-part series of our COVID Contiki tour has finished and uh, we, we are home and we've never even left our lounge room, but we've certainly travelled a lot of territory. And again, I, I'm just going to rave a little bit longer about Jess and about Fiona because they have done so much labour in getting ready for this podcast. And I can't thank them enough. And if you want to find out more about both of these wonderful women, look at Instagram to follow Jess Campbell at Hayes underscore doctor. She does such awesome stuff. And Fiona Willer, of course, on Instagram at Fiona Willer. Very easy to find. And Fiona Willer's amazing Unpacking Weight Science podcast, which I can't rave about enough because she brings her research ninja into the realm of weight science in a very beautiful, elegant way as she, you know, she was so eloquent today as was Jess. And I just, I have such high hopes for our future when I know that I'm sharing the planet with people like them. So, wow, Jess, I'm sure you're feeling like me, a little bit blown away by all of the information, a bit of information overload. Also just coming on the back of just the load that we're all carrying moment because uh, what we're dealing with is huge. I keep talking about mental health. Please look after yours. If anything that we have talked about during the last two episodes has been triggering for you, get some help. You are not alone. 
you can always email me, talk to me, louise at untrapped.com.au. I'm here for you. I am a psychologist. I can offer online consultations, but also I'm always free for an email chat. And if you have questions that you want to ask, head first of all to our show notes section because there's going to be a whole stack of resources in there, including all of the papers that we've referenced today. So for those of you uh, equally nerdy people out there who want to delve and and dive into the rabbit hole, go for it. The show notes are there at untrapped.com.au and then you go to my podcast section and you're going to find it. If you have questions that you'd like to ask, head to my Facebook page, which is untrapped.com.au. And that's where we can have all kinds of more live discussions about any of the points that we've raised. And, you know, it is a conversation is always brilliant. This whole idea of All Fired Up is about increasing our critical thinking skills and digging and digging and digging and questioning. So please keep on questioning. There's a lot to think about with everything that we've raised in the last two episodes. This virus is fast moving and I'm very aware that even by the time I put this podcast out, many of the points that we've raised might have you know, the goalposts might have changed completely. Information might have been updated. We're going to learn and learn and learn. Today's podcast and the last one are simply snapshots of where we were at a certain point in time. And although the information and the data itself might change, what I'd love people to take away from the last two episodes is just these kind of broad ideas. One is to think critically, think beyond the headlines, think beyond the letters to the editor and the the opinions of people with a vested interest in keeping the stereotypical views of the larger body as as a disease or a walking petri dish going. We're better than that. Keep going with this idea of centering the social determinants of health because, you know, BMI, as we've talked about, is a clumsy instrument that can hide, mask, erase the experience of inequality on our planet. And this crisis that we're all going through is highlighting that and it's an opportunity to change things. And I I desperately hope that things change after COVID-19 for the better. Because I would absolutely hate for diet culture's claws to get into this idea of body size being related to disease without any more curiosity. I'm I'm just sick to death of it. It needs to change. I've had a blood enough. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Just before I go, a couple of things we did forget to mention during our conversation is we've talked a lot about like the crappy stuff we unearthed in our rabbit hole search, but there were a couple of really excellent resources which we didn't get to talk about. One was, oddly enough, a nephrologist webpage. So it's called uh, nephjc.com. So Uh, nephrologists who are coming together I think basically the nephrologists have got the shits with COVID-19 and have put together a really wonderful web page where it talks a lot about comorbidities to do with COVID-19 and and it's a it's because nephrologists are completely not weight biased (laughs) so and, and that's it's quite unusual to find people with such a high level of scientific understanding but who aren't just weight bastards at the same time. So nephrologists page was really fascinating. And I highly recommend if you want to go and have a look at stuff like that, uh, 
nefjc.com. Another resource, which I have been greatly enjoying for a while now, is another podcast, which is called This Podcast Will Kill You. And it's all about viruses and it's all about diseases and epidemiology. And this podcast has been going for a number of years and then suddenly COVID-19 has hit. So this is a fantastic resource because what they've done is put out a series of podcasts specifically talking about the COVID-19. And these these are really uh, incredibly knowledgeable epidemiologists and it's an awesome podcast. So if you want to find out more about the, the real kind of nitty gritty of COVID-19, this podcast will kill you. Find it on wherever you get your podcasts from. Okay, looks like we have come to the end of a very deep rabbit hole. I am so grateful again to Fiona and Jess for having those conversations with me. I'm grateful for all of the frontline workers across the planet who are risking their lives to save others. I'm grateful for uh, my community of anti-diet people for continuing to be there for me and for so many people as we're here you know in such a isolated state from each other but really you know I guess with such a deep sense of community that we have in the anti-diet space I know that we're not alone I know we're going to get through this I'm getting emotional again so I'm going to I'm going to wrap it up but I truly hope that this helps and I will be back very very soon with another awesome episode of All Fired Up. In the meantime, trust no one, think critically, push back against diet culture. Untrust from the crap.